This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome to the 17th episode of the World Beyond War podcast. I'm Mark Elliott Stein here in Brooklyn, New York, and today we'll be hearing the second part, the conclusion of our interview with Nicholson Baker, an esteemed novelist, essayist, anti-war activist, and cultural historian whose new book, Baseless, My Search for Secrets in the Ruins of the Information Act, is the personal diary of a concerned citizen trying in every possible way he can to get the U.S. government to deliver documents about past unethical activities by the military and the CIA, documents he is legally entitled to receive, though, as the book shows, he mostly never receives them. Baseless follows upon an earlier book of Nicholson Baker's that I personally found very illuminating, Human Smoke, the Beginnings of World War II and the End of Civilization, which busts a lot of historical myths that are used to bolster militarism, war profiteering, and endless war. If you have not, please also listen to episode 16, the first half of this interview, in which we discuss Nicholson's new book in detail. Today, we take a wider look at anti-war activism, the meaning of protest, the question of whether today's peace movements are effective and what it means for any peace movement to be effective. We also discuss the author's other writings about peace activism, including his key essay, Why I Am a Pacifist, and another essay in which he narrates his own experience attending a vigorous peace rally in Washington, D.C. We're going to kick this episode off with a song composed by a young anti-war activist named Marjin Zhang and a short interview with the composer. Marjin is a college student who I met at a World Beyond War online event and whose ambition is to compose music in the cause of global peace. We're all about the culture of peace here at World Beyond War, and so I'm psyched to bring you a podcast episode that begins with an original song, Marjin's When I See You Cry, with vocals by Gabriela Godin which will be followed by a short interview with Margin and then the conclusion of our longer interview with Nicholson Baker. You can find Margin's work on SoundCloud, and we'll post a link to it on the webpage for this podcast. So let's jump in. Here's When I See You Cry. There's a river Thank you. 
pacifist for as long as I remember, really. Like, I've always had the instinct. Like, even in elementary mm-hmm. school, I, like, I instinctively played the role of, like, mediator when there were conflicts um, between classmates in school. And, like, when I, I had a, I have a little brother, and when he at home would, like, sometimes hit me in order to pressure me to, <laughs> like, give him yeah. what he wanted, I would never hit him back. I would, like, be, mm-hmm. I had, like, a principal. Um, so, like, so I guess I... It, it took some while for me to kind of like be, become like consciously like a pacifist um, and be like, I'm wanting to like be an activist and, and also like bring music to that. Um, because I guess like for, for a while, people just call me like unpragmatic, spiritually inclined. And I kind of thought like, is this just like a feelings thing? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I've never wanted to just be like, just like, I don't know, like motivated by feelings just but it's I mean it's not just about like feelings I mean like I as now as someone who's attending a college influenced by Quakerism and you know I've always I've also been like just like drawn to like Quakerism myself Mm -hmm. um I'm realizing that a peace activism does have a long history and that pacifism is justified is it is rational and it is even like very pragmatic and Mm -hmm. really I'm Driven by a love of human life and spirit, and that's really, I mean, that's kind of similar with my, 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 my composing. Um, but like music, especially like classical music, which, which is, I mean, that's my training. Um, mm-hmm. the classical music is often thought to be the sort of elitist thing, I guess. But I want to bring it to, to like bring it to like the human, and and like have it be like, um the way a way of connecting with people and connecting with with the spirit an interesting coincidence in reading your biography you you go to haverford college right yes and um i actually know nothing about that but i just noticed that when i was preparing for this interview and the um the author nicholson baker who whose interview will be the main part of this podcast episode today I believe also went to that same college and his book is, he is also a pacifist. Um, so, you know, ha- having <laughs> actually never heard of Haverford college, other than the fact that the two people on this podcast both went there, I'm curious, what is Haverford college and why is it so good for, for pacifism? <laughs> <laughs> well, Haverford college is a small liberal arts college that's just outside of Philadelphia. Um, it was, founded by Quakers and it still has a lot of like well I guess you could say Quaker character to it um so I mean we we talk a lot about like um fostering community and there's there's a lot of student agency um students serve on all of the the major committees um in the college alongside faculty and staff and admin um and and there's a, a student run honor code where like we we like we have like two plenaries each year like the fall and the spring plenary in the spring we um we have to ratify re-ratify the honor code um which which allows us to have for example unproctored exams and and like it but also it's not just academic there's also a social code and like when there are infringements of the the code and like that's brought up to and sometimes there are trials and like it's the students who run those trials um focusing on like um accountability and like and education and like um bringing the the person who's who's like i guess who's broken the code to to like into reintegrate them into the community 
Wow. Okay. Well, that's something pretty different. And does that actually happen? Is that something that takes place or is it more in theory that that would happen? Um, the trials, like that, that actually does ha- happen. I mean, in recent years, it has it, um, surfaced like, that there are problems with, with like the system, but like in a, in a sense of like it, like Haverford was originally a college for, well, Quaker men and like mm-hmm. white men. Oh, um, and, <laughs> and it only opened up to, it's like non-men in the um, 1980s, I believe. And it's become more, more diverse in other ways in recent years. And just like how it, it sometimes surfaces, like the, who who's like brought up, like who thought to be like breaking the codes more often, like sometimes there's this like bias to it like international students um, being being more like reported more often, for example. Interesting. So, like there are problems, but like we were also right. like talking about. Would you say that it has shaped you this educational yes. experience? Great. Yes, very much. I mean, I've I've just completed my first year here. Ah, um, okay. Your musical work is piece themed. Would you say is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, what are you hoping to achieve with the music you create? Well, okay, so I, I do write some music that is like more like directly like piece themed and other there are other um themes. Like I like I've um recently written something that's kind of like exploring my identities, like as a non binary mm-hmm. person and like as with like connecting with my Chinese heritage also. Um, ah, interesting. Yeah. Um so so sometimes yeah, sometimes music is kind of that sort of self exploration. Um, but also, I, I guess I've always had a, a feeling that I want to give to the world somehow in, in this, and like music is one of the ways that I can give. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, I guess one, one thing that I've been exploring more, especially in, in recent years with, with music and with, com- with composing, is, and also performances too, actually, um, is like engaging with, with like performers and also the audience um, in more like in more interactive ways, participative ways. Um, mm-hmm. Having, for example, um, I did a, a virtual concert, a piano concert, because I played the piano, um, about the, the climate crisis. I played like um, Lola Perrin's um, piano suite called Significant, mm-hmm. which is about climate change, um, but like it, it involves like a discussion, audience discussions of, of like climate issues. Um, and I, but like I added to the I added to the piece having the audience because it was it was a Zoom concert because originally it was in person. Oh really? Yes. Okay. And, and so I had the in the last movement of the the piece I decided to to like improvise upon it, but then also have the audience like audience members like in their like at home like while on mute just improvise in some way and they kind of like perform together in the sort of like co-creation of wow. a better yeah. world that was like the, sim- the symbolism there mm-hmm. um so that's the, i think that's something that i want to explore more and uh, because because really like i as much as i i feel like that i i have like these like ideas my own that i want to to give to the world i also really want to to like encourage others to to bring to like contribute things of their their own mm-hmm. um really like yeah like to activate that yeah activate that like creative human spirit that i right. believe in that's like i think 
like everyone well, has in, in, in different ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, thank you, Margin. Thank you for being here. And I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for inviting me. What I think actually happened is that there was one small actual germ attack, and then there was one very large, over a matter of months, cover and deception plan that included the dropping of a lot of insects. Now, some of the, there were some diseases reported in that second set of bombings in 1952, but I think it was very limited. I think it was mostly a psychological attack meant to drive the communists, meant to instill fear and panic and and also, I think it's not just meant to instill the feeling of fear, mm -hmm. but to cause their statements to become confused and ridiculous. Right. You know, I, one sentence that I vividly remember from your book, I didn't write this one down, was I think you were talking about this exact incident when the United States, some, some press secretary or, you know, PR rep said, United States Army does not employ potato bugs as part of its strategy. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, right, but right. some sort of humorous remark designed to simply ridicule what the victims were afraid was happening and, right. you know, to turn their fear into, into ridicule. And actually, so you were, you were just talking about how this is relevant in the year of coronavirus, but mm -hmm. it's also relevant in another way. You use the, the phrase psychological warfare or nerve warfare to describe this type of deception that's designed to confuse and designed to cause the enemy to appear ridiculous. Mm -hmm. There's another word for that, which we all learned, I think, around the time Trump got elected, which is gaslighting. Right. Um, and, you know, I was wondering in your book, if I don't think this word did appear, but I was wondering even if it had occurred to you that what they were doing was gaslighting. Yeah. Well, I use it once towards the end, gaslighting, angry. Yes. And there was one, there's a perfect example of this on in an actual surviving document from from the Cold War, which is I think is nineteen fifty four. James Conant is head of the German government, the occupation government, and Alan Dulles, head of the CIA, and Frank Wisner and others are planning what how to how to build out this tunnel that will be tapping into Russian communications and East German communications. Okay, so right. In, so, in Berlin. And they, they're worried about how it can be destroyed. So they, they wire it with C4 and there are lots of plans. And this is all declassified and with very few mm -hmm. redactions, I think. But there comes a moment where they say, in this meeting, they say, should we tell Conant about this? Mm -hmm. And they decide, no, let's not reveal it to him. We won't tell Conant, who is in charge of the 
government, essentially, in, in West Germany. We won't tell him about it. We will just do it um, right. with authorization from the highest place, which is, you know, Eisenhower. Um, mm -hmm. But And they said, and if it comes out, if the secret comes out, which in fact it did as it happened, but if the secret comes out, what we need is angry, let's see if what it, what it was, angry. Um, oh, I remember it. I, I wish I could remember the phrase too. It's it's about how they are going to deny it. They were right. den oh exactly indi ind right indignant indignant a brief a brief indignant denial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the idea that you would make an indignant that the, that the <laughs> State Department representative is entrusted with making an not just a denial, not just saying no, that did not happen, but he he is commanded to be indignant about something. That is a, actually a bit of misinformation because obviously the tunnel existed. So when when the East Germans said, you know, were were to charge that, that a tunnel existed, it was the true statement. But you ha must deny it indignantly. And this pattern of indignant denial, which is gaslighting, happened over and over again. And it happened in in Cuba when the State Department said, no, no, this has these these attacks, these attempts to set. Uh, sugar cane fields alight and, and bomb sugar refineries that are happening in the middle of the night have nothing to do with the United States. In fact, then you have a CIA document that lists all the different successes, so-called, of the firebombing attacks on, on Cuba. This is before the Bay of Pigs. So these, mm -hmm. this, this pattern in which you, the, the covert action happens, something sneaky takes place, and then some official person from the State Department, or even the president, in the case of the U-2, says, no, this didn't happen. The angry or indignant denial is built into the whole process because it's part of the warfare. It is, it is to keep the enemy destabilized. And by saying, well, but, I, but it, it did happen. Well, no. And then you have, you have these men of great probity, you know, of, uh, Denying something, saying no, that's it. Uh, it. It's the we're Guatemala. It's the re revolt of the Guatemalan people against Guatemalan oppressors. And it was no, it was it was truthfully as that person said. It was actually, of course, an American instigated thing. And 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 there are records about that one. So well, it's that, just a that, it's just a way. You know what it does though. <sighs> I mean, there is this feeling as you travel through the the essentially this uh, institutionalized gaslighting of entire countries and entire uh, somewhat left-leaning regimes in order to make them stop functioning properly or crack down or something. This yeah. takes a toll on the historian. And um, I'm certainly not by any means the first person who's gone through these things. But I, I think it's this. It's it's sort of similar to what happens when you try to wrest secrets from the government, and you have to write letter after letter, and in the end, you have to bring a lawsuit to say, "No, we really need to see this thing from 1952." And that is, so. It is essentially the keeping of secrets in this very aggressive way that these agencies are doing right now is itself a form. I would contend of psychological warfare against the historical community. And mm -hmm. I mean it seriously. I'm not joking about it. I think no, that I, it's absolutely something that is meant to wear people down 
so that they think I've got an article that's due in three weeks in, in such and such a magazine, and it's on Cuban charges of whatever. And they won't, they will not even respond to that request for a year. And then a year after that, they'll respond by saying that they have nothing responsive. And then if you bring suit in a year, they might cough up several documents with huge redactions. You will appeal those redactions. So by the time you get anything, it'll be eight, nine, ten years on. And that is that is something that not just inhibits historical work, it actually takes a mental toll on the historian and, or, or journalist who's trying to get to the bottom of things. Um, Nicholson, there's few people, I think, who can speak to this as, as well as you, because your book, Human Smoke, as, as you referred to before, was both, you know, it, it was applauded by many people who found it revelatory, but it was absolutely savaged by those who found its message dangerous to American imperialism or European imperialism. And so you you have experienced this firsthand. And the fact is not lost on me that there were several years between Human Smoke and Baseless in, right. in which you weren't writing about these topics. And I'm so glad you are writing about these topics. Well, you know, it is. I, a, I'm, thank you. And you're absolutely right. I think that what uh, there's, a, there's a, another thing that I wanted to get at by making it a diary is that any writer has a choice of what he or she can write about at any time. And you can write about sad things or happy things or funny things or, or just weird stuff. And you can be a surrealist. You can be a realist. You can be talk about things a long time ago or things that happened, you know, a few days ago. You can be very autobiographical or not autobiographical. All those decisions are very delicate little moments that where you decide, no, I, I, I must do this. I can't do that. And so when I wrote Human Smoke, it was because I had reached the point where I needed to understand the Second World War. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it was very controversial. And some of the reactions were startling and painful. Uh, and I thought misguided, but um, it also, it's sort of like you, go through something like that, you need a break. So then I wrote novels, a very different kind of thing, a novel about a poet. And I, I wrote some essays about Wikipedia. No, Wikipedia came first, I guess. I, I wrote other essays. and But at some point you think, wait a second, there's more that I need to know about this other thing. And I know it's going to get me in trouble. God damn it, <laughs> I know it. But I can't, yeah. I can't help it because it it is actually so relevant to right now you know that's the thing is if if it's just like you could say well the lusitania uh, uh, is 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 a, a fascinating question of what 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 was involved in the sinking of the lusitania or something but it's it's very contained it's very lost in the past but the mm -hmm. things that are the uh the effects that the Second World War had and the effects of pervasive government secrecy that were sort of created and accompanied the expansion of the CIA are things that we're dealing with right now. What's well, happening sure. right now is that is is that the CIA is messing with the, the planet. It just the, the way it was doing sort of in the golden age of intervention. <clears throat> 
Um, you know, Pompeo is, and he's, he's uh, said in some talk, you know, we, we got to lie, cheat, and steal, and it was, yes, it, it it's the same pattern. In fact, I think it's almost uh, kind of a nostalgia that the new, <laughs> the new yeah. Pompeos of the world look back at the golden age of the CIA and say, well, you know, they did some amazing yeah. stuff there in Guatemala and in the Congo and all kinds of places, and let's see if we can look back at some of those old binders and see what they did. And then they do similar things, disinformation, preclusive buying, economic warfare, all the things that were listed on the original founding documents of the CIA in 1948. You know, as they say, make America great again, right? Right. And it's a, it's, it's, uh, it's horrible to see it happen because once again, it just sets in, in these, in, in a country that is, intervened with, messed with by an American covert action plan is a country that doesn't get back on its feet often for decades. It's not something that, it's not like some sort of surgical procedure that you can right. remove well, someone I mean, and install someone else. It doesn't happen. It You completely mess up the entire ecosystem, political ecosystem of that country, and it, and it doesn't recover for a very long time. That was true in Colombia. It's true in so many countries that have been dealt with un unfairly by our government. And I, I, uh, I just don't want it to be happening again. So partly the book yeah. is just to say, look at what did happen and now think about what's happening now. I remember after I finished Human Smoke, I was in touch with you. I was one of several people who reviewed it on, on my literary blog. And I actually remember thinking, wouldn't it be wonderful if you followed this book with a book about the Korean War? You did? Oh, I, yeah. well, thank you. I, I'm, I'm glad. And I... I <laughs> and I was thinking that you would go on to Vietnam. I mean, I could... Not that, not that I wouldn't wouldn't want to miss any of your other books, right. you know, right. and I should say again, if it were not for the fact that I was a fan of your first novel, The Mezzanine, I probably would have never picked up your book about World War II, which has changed me. So, you know, I very much appreciate your your other work. So it does feel sort of um, pleasing for me that in a way you did follow it up with another book that touches on the Korean War. And I just want to mention how much there is buried in the history of the Korean War. I I delved into the Korean War. I read books by Bruce Cummings, mm -hmm. who, I, who you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I feel like um, the, the horrors of the mistakes that were made between 1950 and 1953 and the damage done is a, an untold story. It's still an untold story, certainly here in the USA, where all we know about the Korean War is, uh, you know, people of my generation know a TV show called MASH, and, mm -hmm. and you know, it's about the extent of it. Mm -hmm. um, so I feel like by by you scratching at the surface of germ warfare, you're really just beginning to, <laughs> to dig into the what needs to be dug into. And actually, if I may, I want, mm -hmm. you know, I feel like we could go on, but I really want to talk about anti-war activism mm -hmm. and what we can be doing. And I want to, so I just had a, a couple of questions. I wanted to segue to this, even though we could talk about baseless forever. Um, 
in your book, The Way the World Works, which has the essay, um, Why I Am a Pacifist, it also has a, a wonderful piece. I think this was originally written for a blog where you describe an anti-war event in Washington, D.C. that you attended. And I love reading that because several of my friends are mentioned by name in that. Um, so it you know feels very personal to me. I would like to know what you think, and I'm not just looking for organizational mm. puffery or, mm. or praise. What do you think of what organizations like World Beyond War and Code Pink and Veterans for Peace are doing? Are we effective? Should we be doing different things? Should we keep going? What What do you think? I found it enormously helpful to know that there were organizations working against war, that I, that I was part, a tiny part of something bigger that had a long history. They say this is something that other people, this is something that people believe in and have believed in for a long time. It's not some fluke opinion that you, that has, mm -hmm. you know, kind of perched in your brain and nobody else has had it. This is something that other people believe in fervently. So I always find it comforting to get emails from the various places that I have signed up to learn about things from and to know what you know what it is that what it is that is most upsetting to a given activist organization what what it where where do you, where do we so all of that is important but and also the specifics you know the fact that each place organizes sponsors uh sometimes sponsors sort of a symposium or a a, a meeting where people are are just are learning things and talking and you you hear who makes sense and who who's making effective arguments and and then also you there are you know there's creative nonviolence there's there're people mm -hmm. sitting in the street there're people and we we see the power of this the unfortunate thing was that obama who gave us so much hope then effectively defanged or destroyed the anti-war movement by becoming this kind of drone person who didn't and he was a terrible it was a terrible development because suddenly the anti-war movement had all the air sucked out of it right and sure. and that, so it was much reduced and then we get a man who is just a total monster who mm -hmm. uh who sort of gets there by making noises about how we shouldn't be involved but then as soon as he's there he's he's the you know he's he's busily killing civilians right and left. And it, it was not uh, so tamped down was the anti-war movement that, that there isn't, there wasn't a movement against it. There isn't, there still has not been a mass outcry of the sort that there, that there was back, let's say uh, in the Vietnam era, but in 2003, the second, the vast demonstrations all over the world against we felt our strength at that time. Right. I mean, I I have to sadly say I was somewhat oblivious. I was not as involved, right. and and I wish I had attended more. But what I remember is that there was a feeling that we, the people, the protesters, were going to stop this misguided war right. in Iraq. But it it did not. It, no. it, it did not stop it. It didn't. I, it I, didn't. I, it, was, it was it was a terrible thing. And I, I, well, I went down with my daughter, who was, I, don't, I can't remember how old she was then, but uh, we marched all around Washington and shouted ourselves hoarse and carried signs. 
And it was, of course, a terrible thing then to have it happen and to know that this, that they were just waiting it out. And, and there were, you know, there were, the war plans were ready and they were going to do, they were going to go into Iraq and do it. And then there was going to be a mission accomplished. And, and here, look at, we've got all these years later, we've got a, a country that is trying to pick up the pieces, is a destroyed, harmed country. And that the death toll was gigantic. Was gigantic, and it doesn't it obviously didn't do. I mean, even this barbaric execution of Saddam, none of it did any good. And and the footage, what we have is the footage of people in the White House watching. A very, oh, I don't know. The whole thing is just so inconceivably awful. So, well, did the the question is, did those marches do anything? And my answer would be. Yes, they did, because it's like it, it's sort of like a martyrdom. It's saying the whole world marched, and still the machinery of war crunched over the gravel toward the in the direction it was going to go. It didn't stop them, and it, it's it it. But the the fact that the that this upswelling of of the voice of millions of people saying no was ignored is a fact that teaches people about the the dimension of what they're up against you know mm-hmm. about the mechanism of uh, and and so it's not futile i think it's it's i really still believe in the power of nonviolent protests um just 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 do i just do believe in it but there has there has to be it has to be there's a book by Richard Gregg from, I think it was the 30s even, maybe the 50s, but long time ago. You have to include the element of surprise. And so there was, for instance, one of the Black Lives Matter marches, the surprising thing was it was totally silent. There was no chanting. There was not mm-hmm. whose streets, our streets, there was nothing. It was a completely ah. silent flood of people saying, just walking through, and I think they had signs, but making no noise. And that was the, the the effectiveness of that particular manifestation was that it was not noisy, but it was still a sense of humanity corset right. moving through a street. Um, we need these physical things. These we need actual marches. We need people in the streets about. And of course, the anti, the defund the police movement. Just a little bit of extension with that. It's the defund the no, the Pent- Pentagon movement. It's the same damn thing. I mean, they're both using the same right. techniques. So, so this is maybe the beginning of something. I don't know. But even if it isn't, it's worth saying this all the time. I just I'm immensely grateful to you guys for doing for getting the word out consistently weekly all the time to say mm-hmm. again to remind us that this is you know that people just cannot it, it is not tolerable to have drones flying all over the world dropping things on people that blow up that's not acceptable it is not acceptable and because it just because it's been happening now for 20 years doesn't make it acceptable and just because it's not in the on the front page anymore doesn't make it acceptable. I want to point out that it not only is it not acceptable, but clearly all will benefit from a more peaceful world. So it, I mean, tell me if you. I'd love to know your your instinctual reaction to what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. But the 
reason I'm part of World Beyond War and the reason I protest with Code Pink and these other groups is because I really do, I truly do believe we will end this, the, you know, this disease in my lifetime. I truly believe it. And the reason I believe it is that it's a no-brainer that war causes more war and peace causes more peace. And I mean, your book, Human Smoke, proved this clearly in terms of, I mean, as I always say, by the way, one theme that we are, we're building upon at World Beyond War is debunking the myth of World War II. But one thing I always point out is that World War II is the worst sequel of all time. It Right. If it were not for World War One, there's absolutely no way there would have been a World War Two. And when people talk about how do you prevent World War Two, the answer is in 1914 when we made the ridiculous mistake. We, you know, the people of the Earth, mm-hmm. uh, starting an incredibly violent war that, as far as I'm, I can see, has not ended yet. I mean, it seems to me the cause and effect that began in 1914 is still with us today. Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I'm an optimist. I, I truly am. I'm not, I'm not an anti-war activist because I like lost causes. Mm-hmm. I, are, you, are you of the same mind or not? Wow, that's a tough one. I would say that um, it's very heartening to look at the, at the 20s and to see how, world, how there was a worldwide you know, petition to outlaw war and that was a, was a uh, in reaction to the absurdities and real devastations of World War One, there was a, a powerful peace movement, and then during the Vietnam War, there was a, it was again, and it and that's where I grew up. And so I'm, I'm always, I I I feel that in the long run that human beings do learn from their mistakes. And one of the things they learned is that, for instance, the gas warfare was a really, really bad idea. So they, there have been things that have changed. There's progress. It's not thing. If you look, if you look at how people were treated, people, let's say, who objected to U.S. government in in 1952 versus now, it's better now. Talk about like the Rosenbergs. So, okay, that's horrific, horrific stuff. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a completely segregated Washington D.C. The Rosenbergs. We're talking about people like Paul Robeson would wanted to want to go. He wants to go to Europe to give a speech critical of of American uh, military might. So they just take his passport away. You know, this was co- common practice was of silencing. They, you know, the the, the Communist Party was made illegal because they and they were convicted of, of trying to overthrow the United States because they had published communist literature. I mean, it was a terrible time. And so I think we've made huge progress, hmm. even though we've come up with unbelievably more efficient ways to cause mass harm and also highly specific harm. So we've come up with these, you know, pilotless drones with guided bombs. And then we also have thermonuclear weapons that are unimaginably powerful. So that's really bad. I, I just, I, I, I can't say that I think that it's going to happen in my lifetime for sure. I can't say that. To, to answer your question, I think that whether or not it happens in my lifetime, that if somebody who had been arguing for abolition in, let's say, you know, early 1820 mm-hmm. thought, I, I better not argue for abolition anymore because it's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. I, that would be too bad. 
Um, you right. st- he he. It didn't happen in his lifetime. Many people, oh, you know, right. the Quakers were uh, uh, arguing against slavery in the 18th century, and it those people all died, and there were still slaves. So it didn't. They didn't succeed, but they were right to yep. argue in favor of it. And and I think that you know, world beyond war is right to to say what it is saying, regardless of whether in 40 years there are still drones flying around. Um, I, I just don't, I can't, I can't predict because there've been so many, there've just been so many convulsions that are unusual and new and have a different flavor than the, the last one uh, that, that I just I I, I the only thing I, I the only thing I think is good that it, that is good to point out maybe about all this is that the history of these movements, the history of the anti-war movement, and the history of how wars consolidate themselves and how how when the war lasts a long time people get crazier and all that kind of thing. That's very important stuff, and so yeah. it is it's so important to study the people who had the moral courage to protest a certain war when it was exceptionally unpopular. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Congressman Rankin, I guess it was her name, who was the only person to vote against the war re- resolution in, in 1941. Um, the people who do things at great personal cost, those people need to, be, their lives need to be looked at and, and celebrated. And then this way that a war fever kind of creates a strange form of irrationality that then percolates out through the intellectual population of a country and makes people just say the dumbest things and it's insane stuff because they're in the middle of this war. That that right. that has to be studied so that we can defend against it and know when people when you see somebody on cable saying something that makes absolutely no sense that is not consistent with what they said a year and a half earlier because now we're in this sudden excitement of a war or something you you can understand it better because you've seen this pattern happen over and over again in the first world war there was there was a, the same hysteria the second world war Korean War, what is is a perfect example, and in fact, <clears throat> this whole book grew out of my book about libraries because I I didn't understand why there was all this Cold War tinge to microfilming, and I began to under learn about military research in the in in the Cold War. But it had an actual. This is why I think that I I was finally moved to write this book is th- that the first victim the that there are victims of a war in a foreign country. In Korea, the entire nation was devastated. Millions of people died. There are also victims, there is a sort of internal bombing that happens in a country. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the Korean War, there was a secret program that was in progress at the Library of Congress that was totally unrevealed to the public in which a whole floor of people were picking bomb targets in the Soviet Union and China. And they and it had to be there in the Library of Congress and not in the Air Force because they were civilians. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that program was taking up all the space that the library was supposed to be devoting to storing stuff. 
And and a couple of the librarians said, this is really too much. We didn't we weren't supposed to be doing all this defense related research. And they were on the verge of getting rid of this Air Force program, moving it out of the library mm-hmm. when the Korean War started. And suddenly the Librarian of Congress, Luther Evans, wrote the mm-hmm. Air Force and said, We have looked at our storage situation and we are pleased to report during this troubled time we will uh, be able to house your air research division for for the foreseeable future said that and the the net result of that is that the american newspaper collection slowly got crushed all these the actual into microfilm riches of history get crushed into microfilming and into just tossing them out the duplicates get tossed Mm -hmm. out so there's a cost to our own souls to our own memory that a, a war has almost inevitably, as well as the cost on the battlefield and in the cities of foreign countries. So, so true. And you did vividly describe this in the book. And it did occur to me that this is a, a connection between your previous works that appear unconnected. Um, you, you know, you've done really beautiful um, illustrated books, or you could almost, I guess, The World on Sunday, I guess, is a coffee table book of old newspapers, right. which seems like a completely different part of your literary works, but actually, as you just pointed out, is totally tied into this. So that, that actually, that's a great segue to what I think should be my last question, because you've kindly allowed me to talk to you for so long here. Um, my last question is, what makes a few of us, including you, including me, and probably including most people who will listen to this podcast, people who, who take on this quixotic um, quest what what makes you and what what makes any of us become a peace activist? Do you have any answers to that? And that will be my last question. I think it's a squeezing around the heart. You know, it's a it's a it's a it's a difficult. Well, you know, I think often. You mentioned this book, uh, The World on Sunday. It's really a book that my my wife, Margaret Brentano, edited and, and wrote, and I just took the pictures and wrote the introduction. But it was it was something I want to make a point that that the point about that book was to say, look at this stuff. And and you mm. don't have to make fancy arguments about whether microfilming is good or bad or anything. Just look at this stuff and say, should this have been allowed to exist or should it have been cut up and destroyed? That's the question. Yep. Well, the answer is this book. Look at it, and then you will you can you will probably decide what we decided. Okay, so that I find that so often in all these things that the that there's an image. There might be an image in a paragraph that somebody said, but it might be the picture of the completely defoliated moonscapes in Cambodia of the rubber plantations when. Um, American yeah. planes um, s- dropped uh, defoliants on them. I saw that as a kid, and I thought, "Ah, that that doesn't make any sense." Or, or you know, the pictures of 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 Tokyo uh, or of or of Hiroshima after the bomb was dropped. Those images are so potent, but you have to be you have to have arrived at the moment in which that image that thing will settle on you and actually 
kind of grab you in a certain way. And that grabbing around the heart thing has to do with knowing more about the context, the history of things. And I think, so I think that, that the people like me, for instance, who was sort of an unthinking aesthetic kind of guy who just didn't want to be bothered by thinking about wars and all that. Uh, what it was for me was watching in the first Gulf War was watching the bombing of Baghdad from the roof and seeing those images and knowing that those images, which were just sort of sparkles of light in the night sky, were neighborhoods that were being, and, and in some cases, uh, groups of soldiers, but in any case, lots of people were dying. And we were watching essentially a snuff film of a city. And I was watching it and it was being broadcast, you know, at the time on, on CNN. And it just was paralyzingly awful and felt like a, a mistake that was so clearly a mistake. But it wasn't so the image then click something and then other things have to click in and click in. So I didn't write anything about wars back then at all. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I continued to write, you know, I, I wrote, I think that was, I'd, I'd written the mezzanine back then. And I, I then wrote room temperature was about giving, you know, a bottle to a, a little baby. And then I wrote a sex book and I wrote some essays and I got involved in card catalogs and libraries and, you know, there were years that went by, but that, but that image was yes. so powerful that it set in motion something. Sometimes it takes a decade before you're you're willing to go on record, and by going on record, I mean it might be that you write a letter to the editor, or it might mm -hmm. be that you uh, give money to you know your fine organization or some other. It might be that you march in a thing, or it might be that you write a book about a war. But whatever it is that you're doing you become more involved and it takes a while before you do that. But I think that um, it's good to do that. It's good for one's own mental health because otherwise you're living in a state of cognitive dissonance. So true. Where you're so thinking, true. where you're thinking this is bad, but I don't know what to do about it. You know, you've got to do something, take a few steps and you'll learn what steps you can take. What, what steps work better for you? Cause some people are better at doing stuff like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, maintaining server farms that might help with, I, I can't even imagine. There are all sorts of ways you can right. help uh, the world become a more reasonable, rational, peaceful place. Um, and just being nice to people when you're yes. out and about yeah. is, is a good thing. I mean, I do think that civility and and with other people, especially people who disagree with you, is a good thing. I, that's why I think the nonviolent movement is and continues to be the most successful, powerful wow. movement is because as uh, Baird Rustin and Martin Luther King and Gandhi and all those people th thought and theorized, it gets it gets results because it disarms the enemy. It, it makes the enemy's arms actually something that is a, a force against the enemy because it is, because it's so evident to other people that this is not the way to treat this particular form of protest or of, yes. of existence. In other words, 
when when you're a peace activist, it is both political and global and also personal and interpersonal. And that definitely, that does bear out. I mean, one thing I'm happy to say as somebody who's been with World Beyond War, this organization for about two and a half years now, mm-hmm. we do we do see the values in how we treat each other we i i've worked for many organizations and this is an organization that has a culture of kindness and democracy and i see that in every anti-war organization that you know we we live it we 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 try to live non-violence um right. and we try to work with that and um I mean, I have to say that's a great answer to my question, a long, a long and, and winding answer, but you, you definitely gave me the answer plus some. So I, I want to just thank you at this point. This has been incredibly moving. I had no idea we would talk this long. I really appreciate you taking the time and um, thank you. Well, Mark, you, I, I, I admire what you're doing and I'm very happy to be a part of it. And I I learned something by talking about it. This is the first long, long talk I've had about this book, and I still it still feels very raw. So the fact that you asked those these good questions and um, included me in in this podcast series, I'm really grateful for. Thank you. for listening to today's podcast. Our podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to give us a rating. Visit worldbeyondwar.org to learn more about the social and environmental impacts of the war machine and get involved in the movement for a world beyond war.